Hello and welcome to the Get Your Film Fix podcast. That's right, the Get Your Film Fix podcast. No fears, no limits, no substitutes. <laughs> I'm Lee Carlo, joined by Chaping Hemingway, kicking off what is sure to be a historic December. It is officially fixie season, and we've got a huge slate of films hitting the streaming services this month, including Tenet, Mank, and Midnight Sky, as well as one of the one we'll be discussing on today's episode, the newest film from director Ron Howard, starring Academy Award nominees Amy Adams and Glenn Close, <clears throat> Hillbilly Elegy. The polarizing film is an adaptation of the best-selling memoir by J.D. Vance. It tells the story of his upbringing in rural Ohio and his relationship to his family, as well as his attempts to build a better life for himself as a student at Yale Law School. We're going to discuss the merits of the film, its performances, and perhaps why this movie is getting any attention from us at all. And we'll then wrap things up with a quick discussion on all the other movies we're looking forward to in the coming months that may have fixie considerations. Well, I thought your mama was going to be all right. <laughs> be happy. I know I could have done better. But you, you got to decide. You want to be somebody or not. I've been doing real good. I just had a down month. I got an interview tomorrow, Mom. Otherwise, I... Oh, you know me. I always land on my feet. Don't look at that. Come on. Come on. Don't you look at me. You look at me. You let her get away with this every time. I told you that I would do better. You always say that. You're and lying. I always try. You got to think about these kids. What do you think I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old, huh? Never had a life where I wasn't thinking about the kids. Do you actually want to be dead, Mom? Or are you just too lazy to try? Jamie. Oh, I tried. Plenty. You've always got a reason. It's always someone else's fault. Some point, you're gonna have to take responsibility or someone else is gonna have to step in. Who, huh, who? You? Okay, Chapin, we do have a sponsor this week, but I have to apologize to you because I feel like I probably should have run this past you and Jeremy first. I'm not sure if this is the kind of thing we're comfortable promoting, but Um, Haley, well, did they pay for it? They did. I'm comfortable with it. And you're comfortable with it? Very well. This week's episode is sponsored by Fleur de Lis. The one-of-a-kind escort service can make your dreams of a night with a beautiful Hollywood starlet come true. I cannot speak personally to the quality of the service, but for nearly 70 years, the company founded by the late Pierce Patchett has lived up to its slogan, whatever you desire. Okay, Chapin, so Hillbilly Elegy. I mentioned that this movie has been somewhat polarizing, but I'd like to make it clear that the movie itself has actually been pretty much universally panned. Uh, It has a dismal 39 on Metacritic, with the highest score from any critic being a 50 out of 100. Uh, Unless your name is Richard Roper, it seems that you've hated this movie. Uh, What is actually dividing opinions, though, is the performances in this movie. Both Amy Adams and Glenn Close have shot to the top of the list, list of Oscar favorites, so now, ha- I'd like to start off actually... asking you a question about that. Well, that's, we'll get into that, about whether or not that's legitimate or just we haven't gotten to the other movies yet. But uh, 
when I did my research on this question, I, I, it turned out that this this isn't as pervasive as I expected, but I'm going to bring it up anyway because it it seems to me that nearly every year, but again, maybe not, there's a performance or two and sometimes even a movie that the film world just decides is the best of the year. This happened last year with Renee Zellweger and Judy. The year before that, uh, Rami Malek, and I think also Glenn Close for her role in The Wife, although she didn't end up winning there. Uh, and I can understand this to a certain extent because you have certain people that, you know, quote unquote, deserve their Oscar. Uh, Amy Adams and Glenn Close have a combined 13 nominations between them and zero wins, six for Adams and seven for Glenn Close, which is actually pretty incredible. But I- I'm just curious on your thoughts on these early decisions and and where those come from. I, th- I always like to think that there's just some like, blogger in his basement upon whose whose word everybody just lives and dies by when it comes to this and he writes something and then everybody just follows suit but in reality i want to know how this happens with movies like why where does it start and why do these performances just just launch regardless of their quality sometimes it's so funny you ask that because i had that same i had that same thought um it, it it's just more like it's just more this phenomenon you know like how does this happen why do we why do these people i mean judy is the best example of it right like this kind of yep. washed up star not washed up that's not fair to to renee zellweger but like someone who wasn't relevant really you know who has already won an oscar right yeah for yep. cold yeah, mountain she had. um yep. and and then this movie comes along that nobody really likes but they I guess she's okay in it. I don't know. I or didn't saw. see it. Yeah, that nobody really saw. And then it's like, yep, she's just gonna win. She's just gonna win this year. It's just yeah. bizarre. I I don't know. I don't know how it happens. I have to say that like, I will be very surprised if these two make it all the way to 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 an Oscar nomination. Um, you know, it's it's we sort of have to see like uh, how this 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 fixie season and Oscar. Si- season award season in general plays out i'd be surprised if they make it i think this movie i mean let's let's not really reveal what we feel about it yet but the the reviews are bad enough that you know it's not even like a middling movie that i think you know i had this thought that like and i talked to to you and jeremy about it last year with the fixies like i think i want to reward performances that are beneficial to a film that add to a film and, mm-hmm. and and that are part of the mix you know that are part of um making a good movie and um i think i think for the most part that usually holds true with the academy obviously in the case of these the awards you just mentioned i mean in the eyes of the academy bohemian rhapsody was a good movie it was nominated for best <laughs> picture and it won yeah. editing somehow etc but i, I I think this movie is the reputation of this movie. The reviews of this movie are bad enough that they won't nominate it. I hope they don't. Um, yeah, and and I think I agree in terms of their performance. I think that the the excitement of their performances may fade. Now, follow up question to this, and I know we typically try to review the performances after we've discussed the movie because it's it ends up being tricky to not reveal our thoughts on the movie in doing so. But I'd like to do that anyway. Are Adams and Close really any good in this movie? That's uh, the second question. I don't think so. I mean, I don't. I, I I had I had trouble with that because 
I really just like, I don't know. Um, I, I don't, um, So this I don't is... think they're like given anything to work with. Like, I think this, I think these characters are just not good. Like, just everything about this movie is bad, and the script is bad, and I, 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 I frankly, I did not see any glimmer of hope in uh, Amy Adams' performance. Um, I knew you were going to, I knew your questions were going to surround performance because you've been talking about the performances so much. <laughs> well, I have before, others, but even before I have we others, saw it, but, <laughs> but um, I, I honestly did not see one ounce of respectability in, you know, or talent in Amy Adams, who I gen, genuinely, generally like, um, who I think is quite good in this performance at all. Uh, and, and I, but I did see a little in Glenn Close, who I generally don't like that could you know be be a, a, a an inkling a, a, a sort of spark of something that could be good ha- had it been developed but they they i mean honestly they were given nothing to work with and what they had to work with i don't think they did a good job with so amy adams was just like it was so apparent that she was acting that both of these actors were were made up. Adams looked appeared to gain weight for this role. Uh, you know, Glenn Close was nearly unrecognizable in her costume and makeup and prosthetics. And but none of that mattered because I was watching Amy Adams and I was just like, oh, she's acting in this scene. Yep, she's acting like this in this scene, acting like this in this scene. And that's not something that you want, and especially in a performance like this where the expectation is that a character is going to lose themselves in that character and become that character. And that's what this movie needed. And I didn't find that at all from her. And I didn't really, I wasn't really convinced by Glenn Close either for the reasons you were saying. Like, it's very hard to separate what, uh, in a movie like this, was the performance bad or was the material bad? And I think, honestly, and I wrote this down kind of as a joke, but I think that this honestly might be happening, that people grading these performances highly have sort of, like, scaled them up. So instead of seeing a myriad of just absolutely horrible acting from everybody else in this movie and then seeing good acting from Amy Adams and Glenn Close, they scaled up. And all that horrible acting was just normal acting, baseline, average, which makes Adams and Close award-winning. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't think that's what it is. I think they saw Adams with a shitty, you know, hillbilly haircut and... You know, maybe twenty pounds of weight, and they saw uh, Glenn Close with all that prosthetics on her face, and they're like, "Oh, this is an Oscar play." I, I, sure. I, I, and the thing is, is like you know, I had to I had to start working in in advertising and PR to understand how this works. I mean that that's what this is. It's people, you know, sending buzz out. Like this is what PR people do. They just like yeah. they create a buzz and. Like, it's again, like the blogger I, in the basement, but it's just like a little different. Like, yeah, no, but like honestly, like they'll put together a press packet and say all these things they did for the performance, and they'll you know call and 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 do what's called a pitch to a to a journalist and say you know Amy Adams worked so hard doing this and that, and like there's all this bullshit that they pitch, but like honestly, it's sort of like what we said about Greyhound 
you know, just watch the movie. Like you don't need yeah. to go beyond that. That's yeah. it. Conversation over. <laughs> but I right. love this movie, Lee. I got to tell you. <laughs> okay. So we're going to get into that. Okay. We're going to get into that. All right. Next up. And forgive my long windedness here because I want to give some, some back story to this, this movie a little bit. So the main character in this film is named J.D. Vance. Yeah. Uh, he is the author of the memoir upon which this film is based, and he's played by an actor named Gabriel Basso. His older self is played by an actor named Gabriel Basso. We'll get into him in a little bit. Um, now, it'll surprise no one that the movie doesn't go into nearly as much detail as the book does. I haven't read it. I imagine you haven't. I have, I actually. Did. You have? I have, yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you were one of the many. So you can provide some more insight as well. So it was a best-selling book. Uh, it was published just uh, in 2016, just before Trump was elected. And part of the reason it was so successful is because people were trying to understand the thought process of people from this part of the country that right. that uh, for the majority voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and I bring this up because uh, he opens his book by saying this, and I'm quoting it. I'll be the first to admit that I've accomplished nothing great in my life, certainly nothing that would justify a complete stranger paying money to read about it. Now, I respect the humility in that statement, but from what I understand, people were not paying to read about his specific experiences, but rather how those experiences are a representation of that part of the country, uh, with which a lot of people are, are very unfamiliar now, the opening of this movie sort of takes an opposite approach. The opening line of voiceover says something along the lines of, when people ask me where I'm from, I tell them Kentucky, Ohio, and he goes into it. This is implying that people do care about his specific story, where he's from, and his specific experiences. And we've seen movies open like this before, and they're often very saccharine and melodramatic, and I don't usually like them very much. So it certainly wasn't a good start for Hillbilly Elegy. But consider the differences in these two approaches. One is admitting that you probably aren't interested in J.D. Vance's life, but will read on because you want to know about his world. And the other is suggesting that you care enough about him to ask where he comes from. So in this movie, is there anything that we ultimately care about at all? Um... Well, well, and the reason mean, I do, ask do is because like I don't before we before, like going into it. No, as you're watching it, what are you what do you care about? Because what this movie does not do and this has led to some of the controversy surrounding this movie. We maybe we'll get into that part later. You don't have to discuss it now, but what this movie does not do is represent the world. It really just tells the story of this one character's upbringing kind of flashes back and forth well, to his time at law school. Why don't I tell you why I read the book? Please do. So part of my job as a working for an advertising agency is that, you know, like many states, Oregon is this, you know, most of its population is concentrated in the big cities, specifically Portland, which is a very left, you know, uh, sort of bat now. And, and especially this year, bastion of kind of, ultra left politics. Um, and, but the surrounding rural areas of Oregon that are populated, but not nearly as populated as the, what's called the I five corridor where, you know, the running, uh, North South, um, through the state, you know, there are a lot of 
people who are live in rural rural life and you know tend to vote conservative and tend to be um you know kind of anti the the, the politics that we espouse in in this part of the, of the state and so but you know that doesn't you know when we're launching a statewide public health campaign for example we need to reach those people even if they aren't a significant you know percentage mm-hmm. of the population although they often are um, we need to reach them and so it, part of how we sort of pitch ourselves is is the research we've done to like tie, try to talk to people like that and one of the things we say often is like we've read hillbilly elegy like um mm-hmm. it, it, looking back and trying and, and in the research i did for this podcast like that may have been not the right thing to say because this has kind of like a reputation for being like a book written by a conservative and espousing conservative ideas but as a sort of how in one of the many texts we can read like the, like this was, I think, on that New York Times list that you mentioned of how to understand the Trump voter, how to understand the, 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 the thinking of mostly rural white people who vote mm-hmm. conservative and, you know, are undereducated, et cetera. And so I'm kind of interested in that personally, too. So that's why I read it. And I think the book. If the book works, which I don't think it necessarily does, you should get an insight into how these people think, you know, and sort of, I think, what is keeping them down? Like, I think the controversy around the book is that J.D. Vance espouses these conservative ideas about, you know, kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And if he, you know, does he acknowledge, like, you know, that he's white and the privilege that comes with that, et cetera. And so I'm not, like, super against that from a political standpoint, but... Um, like the movie, this book's conclusions I found were kind of simple, often wrong, and not always like very thoughtful. So, I mean, you, I think in reading the book, were able to probably either pinpoint some things or read into some things in this movie that I have to say were not there. And the reason that I'm asking the question about what, what did you care about watching this is because a lot of what you just talked about, kind of the, the, the subtext of what Hillbilly Elegy may be really about and, and the big reason that a lot of people wanted to read it is not present in this movie. This movie is not about what is keeping these people down. This movie is about this character of J.D. Vance and how his uh, drug-addicted mother, his chain-smoking, gun-toting grandmother have, quote-unquote, raised him. Right. And how he's trying to get out of that and go to law school and balance his, balance his two lives, essentially. It's all done horribly in terms of the filmmaking. We can talk about that later. But... <laughs> What what do we care about in this movie? Because I gave literally no shits about this character. He was a doofus. Like I just the the actor uh, Gabriel Basso was horrible. I think <laughs> I I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe again he just had nothing to work with. But like I I just did not care about anybody or anything that was happening because there was no backbone to anything. There was no reasons for anything that was happening. Um, Well, I will say, so again, I don't think the book is very well written. I didn't find it a very valuable or interesting read, but what there are some interesting parts of JD Vance's story. And I think 
one of them is so mom mamwa mawa mama not mamwa mama <laughs> is a much bigger part of the book um the the mother is not a not a big i mean she's significant cuz it's of course his mother but she's not a character who's in the book a lot but mama is like she mama mama he goes and lives with her right. and 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 his relationship with her is like the foundation of the book um but i think i mean to your point about the to your opening question like they must have shaped this part to be more significant and be bigger for, you know, for someone like Amy Adams to come along because it's that's her, her role. I mean, it's tragic in the book because like it's his mother and he loves her and he has this affection for her and she's a young mother, much like Mama was, but she is gone most, a lot of the time. And so she's, she's absence and her absence is an important part of the book. And like, you know, that's, that's sort of like, yeah. How do you represent that on film? But the relationship with Mama is is interesting to me, and I think it's also a poignant one because you know, with a lot of people who, uh, you know, are near or below the poverty line, like this is a very common thing to be in what's called like a, I think a, a hamburger or a sandwich household, which is where someone typically the Amy Adams aged person is both raising a child, but also caring for an elderly relative. In this case, the elderly relative is caring for both people but you've mm-hmm. got like three generations in, in in one household and that's very common among people who are you know not wealthy and i don't know like it's just it's like my question is what did ron howard apollo 13 director ron howard have see in this in this script in this adaptation that he wanted to do like what is this movie not even trying to say but what ideas are, is this movie conveying to us? I, there are none. That the, There are none. There are no ideas in this. And that's why I found this to be... And I'm glad you've read the book. And even though it sounds like you didn't love it and it didn't particularly work, it does sound like it is about something. Like, this, this movie struggles to know what it's about, too. Like, the reason I hate that opening voiceover line which I, I as soon as i heard it it just all i all i could do is hear the other bad movies that it's played in it's like when people ask me where i'm from i tell nobody fucking asks you where you come nobody gives a shit where you came from yeah like that's that's the point is that like this these people the the, the reason that trump appealed to them is because he focused on them when everybody else has forgotten them and that was the that was the thing that people were drawn to with this book It'd be like oh let's find out more about these people that we're drawn to and that's why the opening of the book to say i've never done anything i've never done anything uh great i i just you know i, I don't think i've ever done anything that people should pay to read about is is a good statement because that's kind of true whereas when people ask me where I come from, like everybody's asking him where he comes from, nobody cares where he comes from because I don't care about this character because there's nothing in this movie that allows me to care about this character. There's bad acting, which doesn't help, but there's a there's a bunch of scenes, just one after the other, just showing extreme things happen. 
Amy Adams freaking out in the car, pulling over and hitting him until he runs into a stranger's house and calls the cops. Glenn Close lighting her husband on fire. Like, just these ridiculous things happening until we get to a point where she gives little uh, JD the bigger piece of chicken from her Meals on Wheels dinner, and then we have a montage and he's a changed man. Like, come right. on. Right. Like, it's, it's a, I mean, honestly, and like, again, the book is so not good enough that it should be referenced like this, but it's like an anecdotal retelling of the book in movie form. It's as if I read the book and be like, yeah, there's this weird part where, you know, his mom cut her wrist cause her dad died. And like, I guess like there's a flashback where his, or mama lights her husband on fire. And it's like, well, no, no, no. Those aren't the interesting bits. I mean, yeah. they're kind of the, they're kind of the memorable ones just because of how horrible they are. Um, but yeah, like it's it's, and that's the thing is that like, like the Amy Adams character. I mean, she bothered me the most just because her character is completely unsympathetic, and I think accidentally, honestly, like I, you you don't care about her. She's she's seemingly an awful person by what this film chooses to show you, which is she's abusive, she's reactionary, she goes from zero to sixty like crazy. There's this weird, bizarrely edited scene where I guess her latest like romantic interest brings home a puppy for JD Vance, yeah. and she's into it. Like she, it it, it appears yeah. the film is telling you that she's the one who instigated this. Then the Until puppy starts running later. around, and seconds later she's like freaking out. The, the 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 puppy pees in her room. She's mad, but then she chills out, and the then the puppy <laughs> runs into the living room, and the <laughs> and the fat JD Vance little boy like. <laughs> Collapses into the coffee table <laughs> and knocks over her Easter eggs, and then she flips family out. Heir, family heirloom Easter eggs, and, yeah. and it's like it's just—I mean, one, it's just like it looks like it was, you know, edited by a twelve-year-old, and it—it it appears, and and and, and it's like. I just keep, keep found myself asking, what is happening here? What are we supposed to take from this character? She's mad. She's not mad. She's, I mean, okay, we get it. Like, she's kind of a, a loose cannon. We're told that she's super smart. We never see her say anything intelligent or nice or or, or whatever. And, and that's fine if you want to create a character. Like, you know, there's plenty of parents out there who are, who are like this. But I don't think the film wants you to think that. At the end of the... At the end of the film, when when JD has to decide between going to his law interview, law firm interview, or staying with his, you know, um, uh, mother yeah, who's going through hotel. withdrawal, yeah. withdrawals, you're supposed to care about her, but you don't. I mean, because you don't care about him because he's a terrible actor, and and also he, like the the character is terribly written, um, and. She is just this awful human being because all you've seen her do is just freak out at everybody. There's no development. All these, this whole movie is just these like the worst events in these people's lives in like really tiny little measures. And you know, the book, the book isn't like that to be fair to it. Like the book is a lot about the dignity of these people finding the dignity in this, in situations where, 
you know, the reputation of these people is that they got in a fight in a store or, you know, the, the, the wife lit her husband on fire and, and how to like, you know, how those situations actually, despite being kind of terrible, have some real dignity to them and, and like the loyalty amongst them. Uh, and, and they try to do it with dialogue. There's like a couple scenes where Glenn Close tries to talk about family. And like, she says, she's like, I, I don't have to, what does she say? Like, I don't have to like, or you don't have to like me. I'm, I'm not trying to earn your, right. earn your I, love. I'm, like, I'm not but, here for po- popularity points. For, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not here for popularity points, but, but your family and I'm taking care of your mother and then your mother takes care of you. And then who's going to take care of, or who are you going to take care of or something along those lines. So they try this whole like, you know, generational thing and that doesn't work. But my biggest problem is like all of these things are happening, but what, but why, what, what is leading to them? You know, early in this movie, we see little JD Vance get starting to get beat up by a bunch of other kids for, I'm not sure. I couldn't, I don't know why. And then these adults come and break it up. And one of the adults punches the other fucking kid in the face. Like that's, right. so all that's doing is just perpetuating the stereotypes that we already know. So that these are just a bunch of hicks that, you know, don't know anything and can't solve their problems and just, you know, do things violently maybe. So that there's nothing that there's no reason for anything to happen. So there's no reason to get behind or sympathize or even, well, that's the one scene where you get upset when something happens, where you see the loyalty that is discussed in the book a lot, where these, you know, despite them, you know, being kind of uncouth and maybe not even, you know, acting legally in a lot of times, like at least there is some sense of loyalty. But another, another thing is like that, that intro, those, those, the, the, the introduction in this movie when they're in Kentucky is just, you know, that's a huge part of the book is like this, this connection they have with this place. They, you know, they were mm-hmm. Kentucky Hill people, but they moved, you know, a couple hours away to Ohio in a more sort of urban environment. And that's just gone. I mean, they, 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 it, it only happens in the beginning of the film. And look, I realize when you adapt a book that you have to cut some stuff, like you're not going to be able to, you know, fully realize all the ideas in, in, you know, laid out in a book, but man, like I, I, what did they do? They just went through and said, okay, gosh, man, th- this woman is out of control and crazy. And let's just, let's just make it a series of, of those uh, I, events. Honestly. So you have mentioned on a, on a, on more than one occasion that uh, Sean Penn's adaptation of into the wild is fundamentally a misunderstanding of the, of the book. Um, I've, I've seen and read that, but it's, I, I don't remember either well enough to agree or disagree, but without having read this book, I can just tell you with absolute certainty that Ron Howard misunderstood it. Like he went through this or, or I get, I don't know. Cause I don't know what the script looked like. Cause JD Vance took part in writing the screenplay too. So either oh, I, I mean I know he's an executive producer on the project. So I think he I think he worked on the screenplay. Obviously he wrote the book, and then Vanessa Taylor is the credited screenwriter. But um, I don't know how the screenplay turned out. But whoever wrote it or whoever whatever however this movie ended up is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the book because all they did was go through and said, "Yep, there's a there's a scene, there's a scene, there's a scene." These all represent something significant that happened in this character's life that would make it on the surface seem very difficult to graduate college and then go to Yale law school and become a lawyer. Sure. Right. 
But that's not what we're interested in learning about. What we're interested in learning about is who these people are deep down. Why yeah. why they behave like this, why they live like this, why they're loyal to each other, why why it is significant for one of them to go to Yale Law School and to do something different. And to well, have to have that kind of uh, decision to make about whether or not to stay home and take care of his mother or to go and get this job that he's been working so hard for. Those things would mean something if this movie really let us learn about these people, but it doesn't. So we don't care. I, I agree with the second part. I think you're wrong. I, I, I just don't think, I think, I just don't think they made a decision. I don't think they made a choice as to what they wanted to say with the film. Maybe. I don't think it's a misunderstanding. It's just, they just didn't just, they decided not to do anything with it. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of interesting elements to explore here that that aren't like, for example, why why is Mama a good grandmother but she's not a good mother? You know, like what the, right. the, the way that like generations change over time and can impact these generations like living amongst each other. I think that's really interesting, um, and kind of what the book is getting at. But jeez, like. Oh, and, and, and honestly, like it just all, all of these events just feel just weirdly anecdotal. You know, I like that scene where they are, yeah, where he is, there's a scene where JD is at, at Yale, which is just a ridiculous. Uh, and he's at this, you know, networking event and, you know, Lee, you and I have been to a lot of, a lot of dinners. I bet you've been to a lot of nice dinners. I've never been to a restaurant that has that min- that much cutlery. And I've been to some oh, fancy no. restaurants. I've never, I don't think that that is in style anymore. Um, but then I remembered, you know, pretty much every person on this planet has seen the film Titanic where it's explained to you how to do, how to use those, that <laughs> yeah. cutlery. Um, so maybe he's did- just, it's just there so he can have, he can ha- awkwardly leave the table go have the conversation with his girlfriend and she can she's much she's because she's not from this is another like perpetuation of the stereotype she's not from the hillbilly rural ohio so she knows how to use the 15 different pieces of silverware on the table right right that black and white i'm a a city guy right i know how to you if you called me i'd be like yep oh you work on the left on the way in on the right drink your wine and then by the time you're done you won't know and whatever it's it's such bs it's such bs but can we talk about this this guy gabriel basso who plays the older jd vance is it can we talk about him went to the (laughs) Kristen stewart school of acting i think the, this this is the always touch your face a lot. That's that's what acting is. I think and shake have, your for, head. I also think we need to get off Kristen Stewart's back. I agree. She's she's good. She, she. um okay. But all right. So a lot about what we've been talking about is just like there's just no material here. So I didn't know whether to feel bad for this actor or to feel bad for the real J D Vance that this is the guy who is portraying him. I mean he he just seemed so lost this whole movie and out of his element. Just like. Not an actor. Like, if you took some... I guess he looks a little bit like him, if you look at pictures of the real J.D. Vance. Uh, so they just, like, saw this guy and, like, plucked him. I know he's been in some other things. He was in... um in Super 8. Super 8. And I imagine he was one of the little kids running around in that, because that was now 10 years ago. But this... What a fucking doofus. I mean... <laughs> Where was where was Shia LaBeouf for this role or Miles Teller or something like? Yeah, maybe they read the script. 
<laughs> that was it. But like, God, you, you have. I, I can't. I can't imagine better actors saving this movie. But God, it would have helped if you had Shia LaBeouf in this role and like. I don't know the young the young JD uh, is played by a kid named Owen Astelos who's also right. really really bad. He's bad. Um, he he looks like he's you know one of the kids from Stranger Things. Grab one of them for him. Yeah, sure. Like, I mean that kid looks doesn't look like he's he looks like he's been going to auditions his entire life. You know, like <laughs> um, I mean not that the acting anywhere else in the movie is any good, but I mean it gets as 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 the as the roles get less significant, the acting gets just much, much, much worse. Do you like, remember the scene where he's like, again, another brilliantly edited scene where they decide to take Mama's car and and yeah. go bust yeah. up the like because like, this he's other not kid who really we don't have any the, idea who he is. He's not holding the beer bottle right, and like he like whole tackles his friend, and then oh my god, I mean, it looks like the guy, the kid, has never had friends before. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the acting is so bad cringeworthy bad but i couldn't like i don't know there were moments with with gabriel basso where i was just like he like he's working so hard like he is trying really hard here to to perform well but he has horrible material he's not a gifted actor it's like it's like it's honestly i felt like the 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 Broncos against the Saints this last week where they had they had their practice squad wide receiver playing quarterback like the guy's working real hard but he completed one out of nine passes he was just completely out of his element yeah, totally set lost. up set up to fail set up to fail it's it just so I felt bad for him but also I hated watching him I hope he's never in another movie again honestly Lee I was thinking about this like I, 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 Ron Howard is a very nice man. I think it's time he retires. Like Ron Howard's name on a movie, just it just means it's bad. It does not have the weight it used to. I mean, and, and, we've and, been talking about twenty years ago. We'll probably, you know, possibly we we are gonna we'll revisit um, a Beautiful Mind next year. Which oh is, yeah, that'd be great. You know, to to borrow. Uh, a term from the rewatchables, it probably is his apex mountain, right? Uh, what do you mean, mean in terms of his power, like because he won the just, Oscar and stuff? And and that's like that was the the height of the we always called it the Ron Howard Oscar machines. You know, he had Cinderella Man after that. He's always working with Russell, Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger at the height of their powers, and it's just you know the Akiva Goldsman scripts, like just absolute superstar director. Yeah. 20 years ago and it's just been a it's been a slow but steady decline uh since then well yeah um, and, and and but even arrested development came back and it's just garbage <laughs> oh god so he you know he adapted another a book that i read um before they made a movie of it and i i i absolutely loved it and i was like you know if i ever just like had half a million dollars laying around i would try to option this movie and it was um, it was uh, the one about the whale with uh, in the heart of the sea. Yeah, in the heart of the sea. Terrible. And, and he just ruined it. And then he like that's a bad movie. Inoculated. I was so excited so- to see that he inoculated Solo. All of those dumb um, Da Vinci Code book movies are are just terrible. 
Frost Nixon, I Frost think. Frost Nixon, is, is last good, good movie, I would say. Yeah, right? I would say Frost so. Nixon's I, his last good movie, 2008. I like Rush because I'm a fan of Formula One, but I could understand if I you don't like it. that movie. Um, it's it's okay. He's doing some interesting things with the camera and that. But Jesus. Yeah, I don't. I, I agree. I mean, he's. Yeah. I mean, Apollo what, 13, obviously one of my favorite movies ever. But what do you think happens? Like, what? Ha- what is like. I mean. He, we know, we know that like every cell in the body, but your brain is replaced, you know, in a certain amount of time. So he's got the same brain as the man who made Apollo 13. Like what happened? What, what goes wrong in his mind that he makes this, that he makes hillbilly elegy? Okay. So yes, Apollo 13 is an all time great. Beautiful mind is a best picture winner. Other than that, it's a lot of good movies and then a bunch of garbage. So, like, maybe we're putting them on too high a pedestal in the first place. Well, I don't, I'm not putting, I just want to be, for the record, be clear maybe that I'm not putting did. him on a, on a, on a pedestal. <laughs> maybe we're, we said to start digging a trench for him. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's remaking Willow as a TV series, which is one of his earlier directorial works. I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you. Tom Hanks was in his movies. Peak Russell Crowe was in his movies. Yeah. And now it's, now it's Gabriel Basso. Jeez. So, so I felt a little bad for Netflix. You know, we've been talking about how they've, you know, splashed out of the Irishman and, you know, try to make their own little, their own little, Oscar machine themselves, but like imagine paying, I don't know, $50 million for this movie. And it just, it not only like, you know, nobody watches it and it doesn't bring you any subscribers. Like it kind of tarnishes your reputation. Like it works <laughs> against you for the Oscar machine. Like, I mean, people are watching it. It's like on their top 10 list or whatever. Um, but boy, like this is not the reaction they wanted for from it, and they probably could have had like you know they probably could have made at least one Queen's Gambit in you know for this for series for the price of this. Yeah. So here's my final question. Uh, we did our coincidentally Greyhound episode alongside <laughs> Apollo thirteen, and on that episode. Jeremy suggested that Greyhound was the worst movie we've ever reviewed on this the is podcast. Wor- this is worse than Greyhound. I think this is Def- the worst definitely. movie we've because, ever reviewed. Because because Greyhound isn't offensive. Like Greyhound was just Exactly. Was just like it was just it wasn't it was just nothing. It was just flop. It didn't it didn't you know, it didn't make it just didn't have anything to it was just kind of boring and it didn't have much right. to say. This is offensively bad. And the it's other offensive. one that we talked about was Larry Crown, coincidentally also Tom Hanks, which I haven't was haven't seen it. It, but it, it, that was just, it was just absolutely god awful. But it just felt like, it's just like, you chalk that up as a miss, right? You didn't show yeah. up this week. You just, it didn't work. All the, all the pieces well, were, were bad. Here, you made it, you said it perfectly, offensively bad. It, but not even that, like, it made me cringe. It made me feel embarrassed for Amy Adams. It made me feel embarrassed for these people, for Ron Howard. Like, you know, those moments when, like, you like you you watch like something awkward happening on TV or like you know like in reality TV or something something like something cringeworthy. Yeah, sure. I felt bad for these people, and not because like I felt bad for what was happening in the scene. I felt bad that Amy Adams was like 
thinks this is acting like or or what she's, happened like she's like i'm gonna well, i'm gonna go to ohio with ron howard for 45 days and this is what came out of it and chew the scenery like this so look i i don't i don't love amy adams i think the 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 people may think i dislike her more than i do i i think she's an overrated actress okay i think She's like good based on what? Give, give us an example of like what's a re- a role that you find all, her all her all her um David O. Russell performances. I I just Fighter, think American Hustle. Yeah, I think she's good in I think she's good in all of those movies. I I think the fighter might be one of her better performances. I like I I don't love her in the master. Right. You know, and she got nominated for that too. So I don't ever think she's bad. I like her in like I liked her in Junebug, which was really kind of her uh, her out, debut. Yeah. Um, I like her in like uh, Catch Me If You Can. She has a really small scene. She's just this like cute little nurse with braces. Like she's right. good in that. Uh, she's good in The Office. She's in like yeah. five episodes of The Office. So she's not a bad actress. I just don't know that she's worthy of six Oscar nominations in her 10 year career or whatever. No, but she hasn't won. I mean, in the big picture right. makes a big deal out of that. The fact, like, and I, I, I mean, I don't care. I hope she doesn't care. I think she's great in Arrival. Yeah, I need to see Arrival again. Anyway, my point there is that she was performing in this movie like she's this is this is my Oscar. Like I'm gonna chew the scenery. This is this is my but, this is my everybody look at me performance, and I'm gonna win. And that is annoying. So I had a hard time feeling bad for her. Because of that. I guess I, I feel awkward. Like, I feel embarrassed myself for watching this. I feel embarrassed sure. for them, for what... But, I don't know. She she is... Okay. I, I don't know that I agree with you about her being overrated. I think she's probably properly rated, in my mind. But there's no way she could have looked at this and seen what we saw what we're seeing now and decided to, to make this movie. Like she must've thought, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you sell this to, because, because, you know, Glenn Close is riding a little bit of a way from having nearly won an Oscar two years ago. Like that's not insignificant. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 this if i read this book i wouldn't say this would make a a, a hit movie if i read um this you know what i assume is what the script would look like i would i would say keep me away from this um you know i think a lot of what we don't often talk about with with stars is is their ability to pick the right project like this is something i always think about with leo he's just so good with the with the exception of um, Jay Edgar of like picking great projects and like, and, and then even with some people where the movie isn't necessarily entirely successful, like you understand it, right? You understand they wanted to work with a great director. Ron Howard hasn't been a great director for a long time. This writer, I've never, well, she hasn't written that much. I don't know what she's like. Um, and, 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 and just, again, just like, just look at the script. Like I rem- do you know what this reminded me of Lee? This reminded me of, um, this reminded me of reading coverage when I was working, when I was an intern in LA and you would read scripts and this is how the script played. And I kept reading these scripts. And I'd be like, what, like what's going on here? These are all terrible. I could write a better script than this. What, what's going on? And th- they just weren't made. And maybe they just made this script, you know? 
so Vanessa Taylor. Uh, oh God! Wrote she... *The Shape of Water* along with Guillermo del Toro, and was nominated for an Oscar. So, so. I don't. I'm just saying that's that's her. She's been a producer on *Game of Thrones*. It looks like she's. She also uh, was the creator of that awful Jackie, Jack and Bobby show. So let's you know. producer on Alias. She wrote uh, the that movie Divergent, which are also based on some books. So, um, yeah, I don't know a lot. Of, I don't know a lot about her, but um, she doesn't have a, a big resume. But obviously, Shape of Water is the is um, the big note. A couple episodes of Game of Thrones, and now Hillbilly Elegy. Um, yeah, and, I part, and that, part of um, me that the Jennifer Lawrence adaptation of the Elizabeth Holmes story that I I thought that was going to be um, Adam McKay's next movie. Obviously, we know that's not the case, but I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I have to. I wonder. I, I I think that this script is probably not good. I I would bet that it's not as bad as this movie. I think there's a like a snowball effect of how this movie turned out the way it was just little by little people just doing things wrong. You know, the script, not capturing exactly what the book was trying to say. And then Ron Howard looking at the script and focusing too much on the anecdotal aspects of the story. Then the acting, just not being able to deliver any of the dialogue that is written. Maybe I, just, I, I don't you know think what I mean? of, there's any substance, to any of the scenes that were what that were, on screen so all right fuck this movie let's talk about what's coming up yeah tell so, me here's here's a, a long list of movies that i think we should make every effort to see and then there's a bunch more i've sent you guys some lists um to obviously see as much as we can we have an extended period of time it's really like fixie season has sort of shifted maybe two or three months um we will try to align our award show with the other award shows. Um, I know people look forward to ours the most, so uh, we will keep you updated on when we plan to do it, but we've got plenty of time. A lot of movies released on streaming uh, this month, either or coming in January, and then I'm sure we'll see even more. But um, this week on December 5th, and our next podcast will be for David Fincher's Mank. Yes. That's coming out on Netflix. Also coming out on December 4th uh, is from Francis Lee, Ammonite, which stars Kate Winslet and Fixie winner Saoirse Ronan. Excited to see that. English language portrait of a lady on fire, if if I'm going to generalize it. Um, Midnight Sky, directed by George Clooney. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Chadwick Boseman's final film. Mm. Nomadland, starring Francis McDormand and Chloe Zhao, is looks to only being that it's getting released in theaters eventually obviously it'll go to streaming but hopefully we can get to see that Uh, a movie called wild mountain time promising young woman starring carrie mulligan sound of metal one night in miami let them all talk is soderbergh's new movie miss juneteenth pieces of a woman which uh stars shia labeouf and vanessa what's her last name why am I blanking on this? Kirby. Vanessa Kirby. Thank you. And December 14th. Tenant. Tenant. I think it's the 15th. December 15th. Tenant. So 
It's been a very, very slow year for movies in 2020. It has. It starts now. Okay. It's okay. a lot to see. It's all right. We'll do it. What are I'm you excited. most excited for? Well, Mank is high up on my list. Nomadland, I really want to see. Um, obviously, Tenet. I mean, I don't know that... I, I'm curious about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's getting good reviews. It's based on a play. And I know I don't want to stamp on his grave, but, like, I have failed to understand the great Chadwick Boseman, the actor. I understand that he played a lot of important roles. I think that's certainly commendable. But I don't know that I ever saw him perform great. And I'm curious if maybe this will show me something. Okay. Promising Young Woman I'm really excited about because I love Carrie Mulligan and she hasn't yes, had the that, career I had hoped for. That looks that looks really good and I've actually heard a lot of buzz about that movie from like non-film people. So I think hmm. the sort of the message is out there. It looks an, like an intriguing plot. That's about her sort of um kind of tricking men into harassing her or something. I what's the what is the logline here? Promising, that is that does sound promising. Um, Bo Burnham is in that movie, Fixie nominee right. for directing. Um, it's directed by Emerald Fennel. Uh, a young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who cross her path. Yeah, pretty, it looks pretty vague. Looks, looks good. It um, does look good. The trailer's the, available. The Assistant is a movie I really wanted to see. That came out a while ago. Um, yeah, so we have to. Um, we have to go through a handful of movies and just make a ruling on what year they qualify for okay. because movies like The Assistant, movies like um, Les Miserables, I mean, obviously Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, there's a bunch of other oh, ones from earlier yeah. in the year. St. Francis, Driveways, you know, there's a bunch that, if- depending on where you look, they're either 2019 or 2020. We'll look at release dates and figure that out. So but- we weren't able to see uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire in 2019 so does that qualify for 2020 i mean it it's ultimately up to us the three of us will just have a conversation and decide what we want i think to i think if, it, if we have a thin I, year it wouldn't be a bad idea i do too i think maybe we just have like a uh we just look at release like widely available release dates even if it says yeah. 2019 on imdb if it came out in the united states in april of 2020 then it's a 2020 movie or something right so we'll look at that a little more closely and figure out what there is but we've got a lot to see fixie season has begun well i don't means... want to be too predictable here but i am just so excited for tenant i just i haven't read a goddamn thing about it i i, I, I know I'm nothing fresh i i just want to watch it i'm just I, I just can't i can't wait i can't wait um you know I'm probably going to be disappointed. I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't read anything about it, so I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm hoping. Yeah, I mean, I was texting you guys like I, I like the, the fixie season is what gets me through the like post holiday blues. You know, like yeah. I, I do sober January, so I can't drink anything. I'm like, you know, the holidays are over. It's a bummer, but like I got fixie season, and this year I'm just I don't know. Like it doesn't feel like. The same thing. But with this list, maybe we can make something up. We will have a new movie nearly every week for the next two months, it looks like. 
which is yeah. which is great. And look, you're going to need these movies. You're going to need Fixie Season because it's not just the post-holiday blues this time. It's a goddamn pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> so we need the Fixies. The people, our listeners, need the Fixies. Um, and I think we should make a big deal about it as we always do. I think that, you know, the biggest, the biggest difference obviously is that we won't be seeing these movies in the theaters. We'll be watching them differently, but it also means that a lot of our listeners can watch as many of these as, um, as, as we do. So they can watch, start to send us their voice memos, start as early as you want. We'll get them on podcasts. We'll save them for the fixies, whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. But next up, no question about it is Mank. Yeah, and, and I'm very excited for Mank. Um, I don't want to think, I want you to think that Tenant has overshadowed it, but I, I am more excited to see Tenant, to be to be completely honest. But I mean, you know, if I'm going to predict things, my guess is that I'm going to love Mank, and I'm going to be, you know, a little tepid on Tenant. But we'll who see. knows? Do you think? I, I, yeah, I I want to. I want like I I want Mank to be the best movie of the year because I'm excited to watch it but i also would love if like one of these movies just blows me away and surprises me and uh, you know we get something yeah, exciting totally. this Absolutely. year that we, ha- that we don't see coming well you know you 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 always talk about and i think you and jeremy together just often talking about like you'd love to see scorsese do that like 10 million dollar movie again right and but i sure and yep. mank is mank is is unadjusted for inflation uh David Fincher's cheapest movie. You know, every other movie that's he's great. made was more expensive. And I think I think that's I think that's going to be really interesting to see, you know, like uh, he, he he the last movie he made was his most successful Gone Girl. Um and now he's deciding to, you know, make a smaller budgeted movie maybe because this doesn't it doesn't have the same wide appeal. Um but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what he does with that. It looks it looks like an incredibly interesting film. Yes, that's a good way to say it. It looks like an incredibly interesting film because it does not have a a real grab to it. Like the trailer yeah, is right. clear throwback to like 1940s Citizen Kane and you know, we did our podcast what? on Citizen Kane and it's widely known to be one of the greatest movies of all time, but how many people have actually seen it, you know? The, the well, general yeah. audience have actually seen it. So yeah. it's interesting. It's going after a small demographic, but I just, I, you know, we know Fincher's sensibility. So that's going to be in this movie and that intrigues the hell out of me. Yeah. I mean, I think, but we, you know, coincidentally thought was missing from Hillbilly Elegy, a, a point of view, a, 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 a some Being kind of something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Some kind of angle. You know, that's what you can't really it's that it's hard to sort of uh, glean that from a from a trailer, especially if you haven't you've been trying to avoid spoilers and whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, that's what Fincher, a filmmaker of Fincher status brings to something like that. Oh, this is what he's doing. This is why this movie that you're not really sure why he made. He decided to make, you know, and that's what's exciting about this time is like. You know, Meg seems like a weird, you know, his dad wrote a screenplay about this kind of obscure subject, like who has actually wrote the greatest movie ever made. And and now Fincher made a movie about it, one of our greatest filmmakers. And so, like, hopefully we go into him like, oh, that's why he made it. 
Right. God, if only like a good Oscar-winning director could have made Hillbilly. El- oh, never mind. Yeah, turn in. You know, he's he should have to. Re- he has to return. He's never won a Fixie, right? Because we'd have that. We'd have to ask for that back after this. No, we this the Fixies year. don't go back that far. Yeah. I mean, he might have he he might have had a, a nomination for like visual effects in Solo or something, but he obviously doesn't get that. No, 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 no. He, I don't think those are the there. we don't broadcast those awards. Those are just right. <laughs> nailed out. <laughs> we find a hot actress to do the the ceremony, and then <laughs> it's always weird. It's always like some like Scarlett Johansson uh, hosted the Technic Awards this year. Yeah. Why? <laughs> that that weren't televised. Okay. So that'll wrap it up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. We did it, Chapin. We got Hillbilly Elegy out of the way. Kicked off December strong. Yep. And next up is David Fincher's Mank. You can email us at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. You can check us out on iTunes and Spotify. Give us a rating on iTunes. We haven't asked for that in a while. Write us a little review. Even if it's a bad one, it's uh, from what I understand, it's a lot easier. the The system is just set up; it's easier to select five stars. But if you want to go through the trouble and give us one, we'd just be happy to see that somebody was listening, yeah. even if you didn't like what we had to say and you loved Hillbilly Elegy. Um, <laughs> if you loved Hillbilly Elegy and you want to defend it, we will dedicate a whole episode to you. Yes, please do. Um, all right, that's it. I've been Lee Carlo. Here with Chapin Hemingway. This has been the Get Your Film Fix podcast. No fears, no limits, no substitutes. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.